Guys, how are we? Well, my name is David Cathcart, and I am not the senior pastor of this church. I am just one of the missional community leaders. Uh, I'm not Jeremy, but I am really happy to be here. I am. Uh, uh, we've been in Augusta for about three years now, me and my wife, and we've been at this church ever since we moved here. We moved here in May of 2011. And uh, we moved here like in the middle of the week. We started looking for churches, went online, uh, found this was an Acts 29 network church, and uh, came here on our first Sunday. And we immediately just kind of fell in love with the church, fell in love with the community, felt like there was a really engaging body of people. Uh, we were being introduced left and right just to different uh, people, uh, so much so that some of our friends now are people we thought were on staff because they're like, oh, you're new here? Well, let me introduce you to this guy. Let me introduce you to this guy. And I was like, man, this guy is really nice. He must be. He must work for this church. And it turned out he was just a really welcoming uh, fellow member. And um, the following weekend, we decided to come back. And uh, at that time, it was we had a, a different um, missional pastor and a different uh, uh, worship leader who have since moved. Um, and then Jeremy and. Uh, Jason did the following Sunday, and we decided at that point to you know turn in our welcome card, uh, say that we wanted to be you know look through the member process, and uh, we dropped it in in the back basket at the connections table, and uh, it was kind of like right at the same moment one of our friends Blake uh, also put his card in, and it was just kind of that awkward moment for a five second pause where both cards go in the basket, and you're like, uh oh, like. We should probably say something now. We've both identified ourselves as new to this church, and so it's just kind of like, uh, we're probably going to be best friends now. We should probably hang out. We should probably go to lunch, because that would be awkward if we didn't address this moment. Um, so ever since then, we've been uh, fully plugged into this church, and uh, we've loved it ever since. And uh, I am a missional community leader. We lead um, a Wednesday night um, group at our home. But my topic today comes from a conversation that actually happened in August of last year. I was uh, in Texas visiting uh, some friends for a bachelor party and a wedding to follow. I was in town for the wedding, not just the party. And uh, so we were out bowling, um, having a good time, come back to the house. It's about midnight at that time. And we're supposed to do poker, and we've got like goodies, nachos, lots of sweets. So I'm you know, pretty excited about that. It's, Really, eating and poker are some of my favorite things. And but also being in my late 20s now, uh, midnight is pretty rough. <laughs> midnight doesn't feel like what it used to, and for the rest of us, that was kind of the same thing. So it kind of turned into, well, let's uh, let's shut our eyes for a couple minutes, and then we're going to play some cards. And so I kind of just like lay down on an ottoman in the living room and pass out. And then it's really not until three or four in the morning where I start to hear some voices. And I'm thinking, oh shoot, I've missed poker, and they didn't wake me up. And then what really starts to, uh, the words I really start to hear are the words faith, and Jesus, and crisis, and logic. And my mind starts to stir, because one, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm an Ottoman, so I'm not super comfortable. And um, I'm starting to hear the name Jesus over and over again, and now, my curiosity's peaked, and I looked at my watch, it's three in the morning, I'm like, what on earth is happening? You know, this is like a bachelor party, like, is this really happening? Um, and then, before I know it, I'm awake, and so I said, okay, well, I'm going to go, you know, get up, go join this conversation, and see what's happening. 
And what's happening is there's a, one of the wives and girlfriends of, of this party um, is talking to two of the other um, fellow uh, groomsmen uh, just about her faith. And really, she's on the defensive. Um, these other gentlemen, one would uh, I would classify as an atheist. The other one may be agnostic. I'm not quite sure where he would fall in the line. But uh, essentially, one of them uh, grew up in the church and had some qualms with what um, our Bible taught. He had some qualms with the way it was organized. And the other person was saying, if you can't logically prove uh, the Bible, you know, if you can't logically prove God, you know, it's, it's a farce. And she was doing a really good job. She was very passionate, saying, you know, look, I, you know, I had a crisis of faith. I had to assume some things, but God delivered me, and I fully believe in him. And so for the, the logical person, it was difficult because there was that assumption in place, that assumption that there was a God, that leap of faith. And since logically it couldn't be explained to him, he was never going to follow that process. And then for the other individual who grew up in the church, uh, his was probably the one I was most uh, discomforted by because he knew more about the Bible than I did. And he was uh, saying when you look at the Bible, you know, he's saying that Mark was the first gospel written. And in his uh, opinion, Mark didn't talk enough about the, the gospel or as far as like the supremacy of Christ. And that was the first book written. The more supremacy books are the later gospels. And they were written 50, 70, 100 years after the life and death of Jesus. And he had qualms with that. And he had qualms with just the stories that we, you know, have as um, almost child, child stories. Like the story of Noah. And he was saying, if God destroyed the whole earth, flooded everybody, killed all the people, and were to call him a good God. And I was stunned. I was silenced. Because I didn't have a response. Um, and so that brings us to Joshua. Joshua chapter 7. It'll be on the screen. Um, I started reading this book as part of a small group. Um, I uh, was just curious about what happened with the Israelites in the Promised Land. I never knew. I knew that they left Egypt and that I didn't know what happened after that. Um, and in Joshua ch- chapter 7 here, we encounter another uh, verse where... Um, some of the wrath of God is exposed. And I wanted us to spend some time talking through that today and then going forward. And I guess before I should I continue, I should probably open up in prayer. We can take a step back and do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together. Um, God, that you have brought us here. And uh, we just pray that uh, we are able to open up this good book. And um, God, it can expose us. It can humble us. Um, God, that your spirit can move through us with this book. And uh, God, we just pray that in all things your name is glorified, and uh, we thank you for this time. Amen. Um, So we're in Joshua chapter 7. And to bring us up to speed, in case we're not too familiar with the Old Testament, um, Joseph, who's a son of Jacob, who's a son of Isaac, who's a son of Abraham, leads the Hebrews into Egypt. Uh, They thrive in Egypt. They grow strong, they multiply. A few generations pass, and a Pharaoh, who no longer knows of Joseph and what Joseph did for both the Egyptians and that whole country, um, is threatened by the Hebrews and their strength and their numbers, and so he enslaves them. Moses is led up, and Moses uh, leads them out of Egypt, if you remember the plagues, uh, the killing the firstborn son, those type stories. Uh, Moses leads them out of Egypt, part the Red Sea, kind of a miracle, and um, 
Then they're in the desert, and they're about to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan, which God has prepared for them. Uh, they send some spies who are gone for 40 days, uh, and when the spies come back, they give a bad report saying the people of Canaan are strong. They are uh, giants, really, and the people lose faith. The people lose faith that you know, God delivered them from Egypt to be destroyed by the Canaanites. And they are exiled for this lack of faith for 40 years in the desert until the oldest generation passes away and the new generation is told that they will enter the land of Canaan, the promised land. Moses dies and Joshua takes over for them. And where we're picking up here, Jericho has just fallen. And when Jericho falls, the Lord uh, has a simple decree in chapter 6 that um, there are going to be some devoted things. Those would be things of great value, gold, silver, bronze. Those things are to be meant for the Lord. They are the Lord's. And this brings us to chapter 7. We are reading the whole chapter, so fair warning, it's going to be a little long. But it's a story, uh, so I think it reads better in its whole context. And if I were to break it up, and uh, it's not... You know, Paul. It's not a couple of verses of Paul, which take you know hours to dissect one at a time. It reads like a story, so I think you'll find it intriguing and enjoying. And it says, "But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai." which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the, man went, the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shibarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us, with that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say, when Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and will surround us and cut off off your name, our name, from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your, en your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. 
he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So, it, so Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua, to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. If you're like me, and when you read this verse, slash whole chapter, uh, you get to the end and then you kind of become flummoxed. When I read it, I had to put my Bible down and think, what on earth is happening here? Why would God do such a thing for stealing some gold? You know, I'm not the Lord, so I don't know the consequences. I don't get to make that decision. But to me, that's, I thought, God, that seems a little harsh. God, that seems a little cruel, a little unfair. Uh, so much so that I was even maybe inflamed and said, God, how dare you? How dare you do this to your people? So our first breakdown point of this passage is that God is sovereign. God is Lord. We see that in verse 6, that Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua here is the acting leader of the Israelites, of God's people, the commander of God's army, army, uh, which is a pretty high calling, if you uh, would agree with that. Um, He speaks to the Lord. The Lord speaks to him. And in this moment, Joshua is humbling himself before the Lord because he knows that for any help to come, it's going to come for the Lord because the Lord would have the answers because he remembers that the Lord is God. Now, interesting enough, when the Israelites attack Ai, this is the first attack they've ever done where they didn't first seek the Lord for his permission or to ask him where they should go next. Uh, Since Jericho fell, I don't know if maybe they were a little high on their wind, a little happy, uh, the fact that, you know, they marched around a city for seven days in a row, blew some trumpets, and then literally the city fell down and crumpled. 
there's a VeggieTales movie about that. <laughs> and I don't know if they're from there, they're like, yeah, like we've got this, like the winds in our sails, like we've got God behind us, let's go get these guys. You know, and then they send some spies out and they're like, oh, these guys are nothing. We'll send a third of our army, this is a fraction of it, we'll go take them. And they find out that that is not the case. Maybe had they prayed in the beginning and God would have warned them ahead of do not attack them because there is sin among you. Maybe that could have been prevented had they prayed to the Lord first. But in this moment, after the tragedy, Joshua realizes um, that something is amiss and goes before the Lord and asks, what has happened? Why have you done these things? He humbles himself because he realizes that God is sovereign. I think when it comes to a sovereign Lord, it's something that we have a really hard time placing what that means or what that looks like. All power and authority on earth is granted by men, and it's only granted for a period of time. Even the worst dictators and tyrants out there have a limited time frame on this earth to do their will. But the power of the Lord is forever. It began well before we were created and will continue um, after we die. The authority of the Lord is not something that can be questioned because it can't be taken from him. It can't be overturned and it can't be shared. I think really what we sometimes are comfortable doing is boxing up God to where it's something that we can be comfortable with, um, that we know that he's all-powerful or all-knowing, omnipotent, but we don't understand the full spectrum of what that looks like. We box him up so we can better contain and understand him. Um... One of the things I think that really helped me understand a little bit of how limited my scope of God was, uh, was actually um, on a David Crowder uh, album. Uh, A couple years ago, he had a CD that had an Adam on the cover, and it wasn't until the later tracks he's actually being interviewed by a reporter, and he's talking about why he put an Adam on the cover. Um, And so I've got an image up there um, of what an Adam looks like, what... If you're a science teacher or you go back to elementary school, what you probably would have seen in any textbook of what an atom looks like. And it is just a diagram. If we were to have a a microscope strong enough to see an atom, it wouldn't look like this. We're not going to be able to view in and see a nice uh, clear nucleus with protons and neutrons in the center, nice spherical orbs. Those aren't going to be there. There's not going to be nice clear rings that the electrons would move around on the outside. Uh, If anything, it's just going to be a microscopic piece of matter that is the backbone of uh, our creation. It's a piece of energy, but it's not going to look like that. Uh, We've done studies, we've done uh, lab tests and everything that helps us think that this might be what it looks like and some resemblance of that. We know that you know, we threw like some oil at it and it dispersed and it dispersed in like a pattern and there was a concentrated center and then something on the outside and we know that, you know, these are responsible for um, the order of our world. But at the end of the day, if we were to look at an atom, it wouldn't look like that. That is just something that helps us get an image so we can understand what we do not understand. And when it comes to the glory of God, we don't have... We don't really have any examples of what that power looks like, of what that might looks like, of what that authority looks like. Sovereign means greatest in status or authority or power. It's not something that can be taken, um, and respectfully, it cannot, it's really not something that could even be argued. 
And I think what this verse did, um, what this chapter did at first, was it, it made me humble myself as well in the way that Joshua did. It, you know, I didn't put dust on my head or anything like that, but it reminded me that I am not God. Uh, it reminded me that although I could look at this and say, God, this seems cruel, this seems uh, maybe a little bit of an overreaction, that's not for me to determine uh, because I don't set the crimes, I don't set what the crimes are, I don't set the limits, and I don't certainly get to say what the punishment for that crime is. And we'll continue on with the second point, that God disciplines or that God has wrath. And this is something that I was uncomfortable putting as a second point because I didn't want to think, well, maybe wrath is a tough word. Maybe it's not a word that uh, is appropriate. But when I looked at the Old Testament, God himself declares that he does have wrath and he has wrath towards sin. Which I think is an important point that wrath is not against creation. That is not against people. That is not... um, set up for you or me, that we weren't created to be the objects of wrath. We weren't created to be, you know, to, to fail and then to have to go through that. We were created, you know, to live in Eden in harmony with all creation and with the Lord. We were the ones that said we want something else. We were the ones that turned away from Eden and from what that had to offer and said, you know what, I want the apple. I want to know the right and wrong. I want to have that discretion and since that point we've had sin in this world and it has continued and God's wrath is specifically set against sin so what is sin? we would have to define that now I see sin as simply something as anything that robs God of his glory there's a book called The Kite Runner it is maybe not my favorite book it is a book where the protagonist is someone who I really disliked, so I found it really hard to, to track with him, although it was well written and it gave some uh, backbone, some story into what the life of Af- an Af- Afghanistan citizen might look like. But there's something in the book that I really did like. Uh, the protagonist's father um, utters this quote. He says, There is only one sin, only one, and that is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. When you steal his wife, or sorry, when you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband. You rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. I think in a similar way, whenever we sin, we are stealing from God's glory. All sin would have the root of glory stealing from God, or idolatry, in other words. I think the sins that we commit against ourselves, which might look like drunkenness or gluttony, that's the one I forget and then (laughs) get remembered by, uh, bitterness, unfaithfulness, sexual immorality, uh, we kind of sometimes want to see this as sins against ourselves, but really... um, They are still sins against the Lord because they rob us of our ability to thrive under God's glory. You know, we weren't created for those things. We were created for the glory of the Lord. And when we do these things um, that the Bible lists as actions um, that should be avoided, we as Christians or as just citizens of God's kingdom 
um, are being robbed of our full potential. And if we were to be honest and to kind of take a glimpse of yourself and your actions, how much of your own sin is selfish in nature? How much of your own sin exists because you want to be glorified? You know, because we want to be exalted. We want the people below us to see how great we are, whether it be uh, friends or family, co-workers. We want the glory. And I think between these two um, things I've mentioned, when we see the wrath and the story of Noah, and that we've seen it again here, we remind ourselves that God is sovereign, and that essentially means that he calls the shots. But just because that there is wrath um, that is set out for sin and for disobedience, I don't think that that means that God is not good. I don't think that means that God is unfair, and I don't think that means that um, God is not good. I think essentially what that means is I misunderstand the crimes and I misunderstand the punishment. And then when we kind of take a step back and we see that who God is, what he's done for the world, what he wants to do for us, now if we've slapped his hand away that truthfully the punishment that we see of Achan matches the crime. But there's good news in this. Um, And that's going to be in chapter, I'm sorry, that's going to be in Luke 22. That will be on the screen as well. The good news is that God's wrath, although it exists, and it might be something that makes us uncomfortable, it might be something that we have to spend some time being humbled by and remembering that I didn't have anything to do with my creation. I didn't have anything to do with me being born. I didn't have anything to do with me being born in the United States, on the earth. I didn't have anything to do with the formation of the world. Um, and that God is sovereign. And that there does there is wrath. It exists. But the good news is that wrath towards sin was paid by Jesus, the Christ. And I think this is the good news of the Bible. I think this is what it alluded to from the beginning of time. And I think as Christians, this is, what, um, this is the reason why Christmas is so sweet, why Easter is so special, and why we sing the songs of worship that we do. It makes the cross a more complete and better story, that it wasn't just someone who was blameless on this world um, being crucified. It wasn't just a story of someone um, who was a great person, who loved other people, who loved his uh, friends and family that he was with and got an undue uh, course of punishment. But because we can see what God's wrath looked like in the previous Old Testament, we can see how God set up uh, redemption through the Old Testament how if we were just to declare him Lord, we would be spared from such things and be able to live in harmony with him. And it was difficult. Uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, the law, uh, they, they knew the law of Moses very well. The law that was supposed to humble them and to bring them back and to lead them to Christ. Or, I'm sorry, to lead them to the Lord, to God. And it turned out that they loved the law more than they loved the Lord. It turned out that they loved the way that the law... And their obedience of it gave them a self-proclaimed righteousness that they could kind of lord it over the other citizens and say, look how good I am. 
look how much money I have and my status in society uh, because I do not sin. I don't have to purchase sacrifices and animals and slaughter them. And they missed the entire scope of what the law came to do. They missed God behind it, God giving them a way to be right with them and to say, I am Lord, you know, be my people. Let me be your God. We still slap the hand away. So in Luke 22, verse 39, Jesus is praying on the Mount of Olives. And this is before he's arrested and betrayed. And it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I find it interesting here that the word agony is used. Jesus, through multiple times in his gospel ministry over these past few years, has healed the sick. He's resurrected the dead. He went to the soldier's house where the child was dead. And he says, no, he's sleeping. Get up and walk. And if that was something that uh, you, know, you have doubts of, then you've got the story of Lazarus who was dead for two or three days before Jesus got there. And Jesus resurrected him and made him walk again. And so we know that this part of the story, we know that Jesus has authority over death. That if he's all-knowing, as he is, that after the crucifixion, that he'd be able to rise himself up and to walk again. So I find it interesting the word agony is being portrayed here, because no matter what happens, he knows what the outcome is going to be, and that he can raise himself up by his own power, by the power of the Lord, and walk and continue to live. Yet he is agony. He's in agony about what's about to happen. And we see why that this agony exists in Mark. In Mark 16. I'm sorry, Mark 15. 33 to 34. And that says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Contextually, this is kind of odd. It's kind of an odd verse. It's an odd placement. I've never understood it until I started to look to the commentary about what was happening in this moment. And it started, and the parallel started to really make sense as far as why the Lord said he was in agony. What's happening in this moment on the cross is that the wrath of God, as we had just talked about, as we had seen uh, with Achan, who, remember, him and everything he had was burned and stoned alive by his fellow people. We just, it just it talked about how they went clan by clan, tribe by tribe, he was stoned by his possible family members, people in his community, 
because of that sin and because the authority of the Lord demanded it. And so we see that wrath. We see the wrath that was uh, in Noah. That's so much so said that God regretted creating humans because of the way that we disobeyed, the way that we loved ourselves, and only Noah himself was found to be righteous, and so God essentially started over. We see that wrath, and then we see it here befalling on Jesus. He is being forsaken by God because of the sins of the world being cast upon him at this moment. And I don't want anyone in this room or in the podcast to miss this, the idea of Jesus being separated from the rest of the Trinity. It's never happened any other time that we know of, um, and it's never going to happen again that we know of. Since the beginning of time, the Lord has always had community with himself as God the Father, the Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1.1, where it talks about the creation of the earth, it says that there was God, and in the beginnings he created the heavens and the earth, um, and his spirit hovered over the deep. So in the very first verse, we know there's a God and we know there's a spirit. In the first chapter of John, it talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the Lord, and the Word was Jesus. And so between those two, va- those two passages, we understand that since the beginning of time, Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit have always been together. And in this moment, it ceases to be that way because of the sin that is on Jesus, because of our sin that is on Jesus. It was a mighty sacrifice, and it was more than just one man dying on a cross, but it was actually the Lord dying for our sake. Because essentially what has happened at this point is even the law of Moses itself, which is mentioned in Hebrews, the study we just went to, the law itself wasn't perfect. The law itself still prevented us from getting to the Lord in a way that was satisfactory to him. The law still held us too far away from God the Father, Because we misunderstood the law. When we looked at it, we didn't see a way to be reconciled to him, to declare him Lord. Um, But we began to be um, legalistic, essentially. And that still can continue today, where we focus on being good. We focus on um, the absence of sin, abstinence from disobeying the Lord. And we fail to see that from the beginning of time, it's always been grace. We fail to see that from the beginning of time, that we were saved by being God's people, by just simply saying, God, I understand that you are God. I understand that you are Lord and that I am not. And so he sends his son to walk among us uh, so that we can see the heart of the spirit, the heart of the Lord, that he loved children, that he um, wants to deliver us out of our current circumstances and into a kingdom that is more beautiful than what we understand And it cost him his son, and it cost him his son on the cross. And the same wrath that burned against Noah and against Achan, all previous, current, and future identities of sin were on Jesus at this time. Jesus came to deliver us back and to bring us to the Lord and to bring us out of our own way so that we could run to the Father without hindrance. And that will bring us to our last point here, that Jesus... God is the good shepherd. If you'll turn to John chapter 10, 
verse 11 and verse 14. Um, we just heard this verse a couple uh, weeks ago um, whenever Magnus him was baptized. Um, his grandfather read this verse, and it's something that through that time I had really been reflecting over reading almost on a daily basis as I was going through some personal strife. And I think it's beautiful. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. When it comes to just reflecting on the wrath that was spared. Um, it reminds me of a, a story, a movie, Saving Private Ryan. It wouldn't be Redemption Church if we didn't ruin a movie for you. And in Saving Private Ryan, it's a story about uh, a World War II soldier who is the uh, one of four brothers who are all soldiers. And in the beginning of the movie, we find out that the other three soldiers have died in combat. He is the last remaining son of uh, his mother. And so the Department of Defense is like, we got to go get him. we got to bring him home. we got to save his family from this strife and from this uh, anguish. And so they send soldiers to find Private Ryan and to protect him and to bring him home. If you know the movie, um, it does not go smoothly. Uh, there's a sniper and then a lot of uh, tanks and destruction, and the Germans find them. And there's conflict and battle, and many of the main characters lose their lives saving Private Ryan. And at the very end of the movie, it shows a, a cemetery at Arlington Memorial Cemetery, and it's an old Private Ryan. And he's kneeling at the tombstone of one of the fellow soldiers who risked his life uh, to save him. And he says, Tell me I'm a good man. He wants to know that he was worth it. I don't tell this story because there's anything that we have to earn. I don't tell the story because we don't need to look at the cross and say, you know, I need to earn something. But that when we, <clears throat> excuse me, that when we look at the cross, that Jesus says a thousand times over, I would do this again to deliver you. I think when we look at John, we see the true heart of the Lord. <clears throat> I think that we see um, through a clear view, a clear lens, what everything, what the whole book of the Bible is about, and that when we see wrath, that it's not supposed to make us stumble, because the, the Lord is good, and He might be the Lord, and He might have His ways, and the fact that we get disciplined for not obeying Him doesn't mean He's not good. We get disciplined because of love. For the sake of time, I won't go into the ways I was disciplined as a child and the way that it protected me from uh, sins in the world, from folly. Um, but being disciplined by my parents, uh, it was done so because they had an expectation since I lived in my father's house. 
and was done so because they wanted the best for me. And all those instances, I never understood maybe why at the time I couldn't do what I wanted to do. But now when I look back on it, I understand that I was being protected from things that maybe didn't matter. That when, you know, my father said, don't drink till you're 21, I was being protected from getting into wrong crowds, I was getting, being protected from not being distracted uh, from college studies or high school studies, being protected from not drinking and driving, which is fatal. Um, the list could go on and on, but for the sake of time, I won't go there. But consider in your life the disciplines that you maybe have experienced and that you could be grateful for because you had parents, people looking out for you that wanted to protect you from folly. In the same way, the Lord does that either through the law or through his commands by saying that these things weren't meant for you. I have a plan. I created everything. I know how you thrive. And he wants us to thrive for his glory. I think in John 10 here we see the true heart of the Lord being the good shepherd. And when I first read it, it was something that uh, really meant a lot to me a couple weeks ago. I was really going through the ringer. I was going through the wire with work. And since I work in this town, I won't go into specifics, but it was... I mean, the struggle was real. <laughs> I since you got to a point where one day it was like, you know, one of my coworkers left, and I was like, oh man, it's just me and my other coworker. Like, we're going to go it alone. And I was already uh, scared. I was already feeling, you know, the pressure of the job weighing on me. And then an hour goes by, and then now she is no longer an employee working with me, and I'm alone. And I have to face the idea of coming to work the next day with having no help. And I'm wondering to myself if I failed these people, being the leader, if I didn't lead them well enough, if I didn't love them well enough, um, because they couldn't handle the job anymore. And I was alone. And I remember reading this verse, and I wanted it to mean something. I wanted it to help me see the deliverance that is out there for us. And I truly believe that God is the good shepherd and in all circumstances and that when we someday have to bury our parents that he is still the good shepherd and that when we lose our jobs or our security that he is still the good shepherd. When we have friction at home fight with our family, our spouses, our children that God is the good shepherd that when we are homesick or lonely, that he is the good shepherd. And that when we... And that when we have unborn children... who don't get a chance to enter this world that he is still the good shepherd
And I want that to be not just a mantra for any of us. I don't want that to be something that we re- repeat to ourselves <clears throat> in the hardest times. But I want that to be a truth. Something that actually reaches down and delivers us from whatever muck we might be in. And that these words come with power. Because he is a sovereign Lord and he is good. And he's calling us home to him. And he came to this earth to deliver us to do such a thing. So in conclusion, there's just a couple of reflection points. That when we take in the sovereignty of God and how he is Lord, does this affect how we pray? That when we pray, do we realize that we're praying to a God with complete power and complete concern and care over us? Does it influence how we give, either with our ties or to our friends and family who may have needs? Does it change the way that we give and does it change the way that we love others? I'm sorry for getting emotional. When I practiced this, I didn't, but. (laughs) I'm not very old, but I've seen the Lord um, deliver me from things I didn't think I'd have to be delivered from. And things at the time that I didn't think I would need deliverance at all from. Things I didn't consider to be struggles or strife, but when you look back on it, they're all purifying and good and for the Lord's glory. And I hope with this message today through Joshua that we don't see a God who is not good, that we don't see a God who wants to destroy us, but that we understand that He is Lord and above all, that He is powerful. And that there are consequences when we don't do what he says, that when we steal from his glory, because it's his house, the whole earth and everything in it is his. But that the wrath has been abated and has been passed over for us. We have been redeemed from that. It is the reason why this church has that name. Because there is good news in this book that there is a Lord, a God out there, who wants to know us and has already paid everything so that we could know him. All we have to do is call him Lord. Um, So we're about to close in prayer and move into a time of communion, a time of reflection, which is uh, a really fun thing that a church does. And through that time, we get to repent, we get to acknowledge our sin, and say, you know, we've done things wrong. I have thought myself king. I've thought myself Lord from time to time. And I'm going to correct that. I'm going to realign. I want to understand that you're my compass. And I want you to be king of my life.
And that time is coming. And then we get a glorious time where we get to sing songs to him. Because he is outrageously good. If you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Um, God, that there is difficult things in this book that we get exposed to. God, that reminds us that we are not uh, sovereign, that we are not all important. Um, God, that everything wasn't created for me and for my glory, um, God, but that everything is for your glory. And we want to repent at this time just to say thank you for showing us the way and for doing that, for being accessible to us and for loving us, for being able to pray to you and ask for guidance and you'll lead us in the way that we're supposed to go. That you know the beginnings and the ends of all things and that if we trust you, it will be good for us and will be good for you. We thank you for sending your son to do that. And we're thankful that through him, we don't have to see you as judge, but as dad. Amen.